the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Doctors as State Property Chalcedon Medical Report Number 5 One of our most common and more dangerous fallacies is the idea that the real and important world was born with us. Like so many historians, we read the present in terms of the present, forgetting that the past lives all around us and in us. Our legal structures have a long history. We are ourselves genetically the product of the ages, behind every moment and even or a multitude of yesterdays. We can never understand the present without knowing, first of all, the past. It is therefore highly impractical to neglect the past. As Disraeli observed, Practical men are men who repeat the blunders of their predecessors. They regard themselves as realists because they focus on the present and they thereby manifest their historical blinders and their proneness to blunders. Anyone who reads legal documents will soon find more than a small hint of mustiness in the language, and with good reason. The language of the law is full of ancient terms that go back to the Roman Empire and to pagan antiquity. Take, for example, the word fee, used by both lawyers and doctors. In its remote origin in Old High German, it meant cattle, and is related to the words fife and feudal. A fee, among other things, meant tended property held under a feudal overlord or a payment to an overlord. The term in law is still in essence feudal, and behind its feudal meaning stands a world of pagan religion and politics. In its usage in law today, The word fee has reference to the ownership of property as fee simple and that pagan world unknown to most moderns continues to exist in the laws governing their property and themselves. It is important, therefore, for us to understand that pagan world and its faith. Basic to that faith was the belief that divinity in essence resided in the political order. The ruler, the office, or the people or state were held to be divine. Civil government was thus entirely a religious function, the central religious institution of society. The state was God walking on earth, as a modern philosopher, Hegel, restated it for modern theory. All religious allegiance and obedience went to the state and its ruler. The people and all that they owned were the property of the state. In the Old Testament, Moloch worship is very strongly condemned. Leviticus 20 one through five. The word Molech is very simply the word for king. The worship of Molech meant 
that the state of king owned the land and the people as his property. Apparently, children were, quote, baptized, unquote, into this faith by being passed over the fire before the king's image to signify their total dedication to the state. If occasion demanded it, they could be sacrificed to the state at all times, the property, families, income, children, time, and lives of the subjects were subject to the draft of the state. Molech worship, like most forms of Baal worship, was the deification of the state and its claim to sovereignty and over lordship over man. We can understand from this why God so strongly condemns every form of this faith in His law. Feudalism was a varied and diverse way of life. Many strands within feudalism represent ancient European paganism. Others are clear manifestations of biblical law. Serfdom, for example, began on the imperial estates of Rome and was inherited by feudalism and was thus emphatically not original to it. Our concern here is with an unhappy and pagan heritage feudalism has passed on to us. The terminology of property laws and of state powers is to this day feudal and pagan. This affects our lives and persons. We think of ourselves as citizens, which indeed we are, because we have suffrage, but we forget that in our property and persons we are also subjects. We hold our land today in fee simple. This is an ancient term which means that we have the right to pass our real property on to our heirs or to sell it at will. These are the, quote, rights, unquote, to real property which we purchase. The real title belongs to the state, whose sockman or tenant we are. Our title is by free and common soakage, not an absolute or allodial ownership. The state can tax, regulate, control, condemn, or expropriate our land. It can govern our persons similarly. Jonathan R. T. Hughes, writing The Government Habit, observes rightly, quote, It would surprise most American landowners today, as it often does, those who cannot meet their property taxes, to learn that the state owns the land outright. Owners in fee simple have possession only of rights in real estate. This phenomenon is part of what historians call the English heritage, unquote. Page 15F. When the American colonies were settled, the kings of England, like other European monarchs, alone has an absolute possession of land. All lands in their realm, or any area over the seas explored and occupied by their subjects, belong to them. As a result, the American colonies and all the lands therein were held by the colonists in fee simple as tenants under the monarch. The colonists, it should be remembered, were strong Christians on the whole. Many were fleeing from the English religious settlement. As far as possible, they tried to introduce biblical law, but the crown was hostile to too much of this. In effect, two gods cannot coexist, so that the British crown was hostile to biblical law. When under Cromwell, the missionary to the Indians, John Eliot, tried to reconstruct Indian Christian villages in terms of biblical law. His effort was condemned when Charles II came to the throne. 
Eliot's book, Advocating Biblical Law, was ordered burned by the public hangman. As a result of all this, the ancient legal principles of paganism, basic to European monarchies, were written into American legal documents. After the War of Independence, there was an increasing rebellion against the older concepts so that by the early 1800s, Chancellor Kent, in his commentaries on American law, could speak of them as relics. The language remained, Kent held, but the older meaning was gone. The language, however, was there in the law, and the law is the law. The states were the first to make use of the language. In Illinois, the state claimed the right to overlordship and thus the right to regulate commerce within the state. In the war some few years later, between state rights and federal rights, both sides were talking in essentially pagan language. The same was true of the early anarchists who were talking about individual rights. All were making man their god, statist man, or individual man. The Illinois case, Mund v. Illinois, finally reached the U.S. Supreme Court, and Illinois won. The decision cited the practices, quote, in England from time immemorial, unquote, to justify its argument. The language has survived. Now its meaning was fully set forth. Why had this past returned? Why was the old concept of fee, fife, soakage, tenancy, and status ownership so clearly in focus after a lapse of perhaps 50 to 75 years, depending on the state? The answer is religious. As the faith of men began to change, their social order changed to match their faith. Their faith began to look more and more like the old paganism that had long held the world and even Christendom in bondage. In terms of biblical faith and law, the state is not the Lord or overlord. God alone is Lord. The original and basic confession of faith in the early church was simply this, quote, Jesus is Lord, unquote. Philippians 2.11, 1 Timothy 6.15, etc. The conflict of Christianity with Rome was over lordship. Rome was ready to grant religious freedom and licensure to Christianity on two conditions. First, the church must confess that Caesar is Lord. This meant that every area of life and thought is subject to the control and regulation of Caesar or the state as man's basic lord, authority, and power. This meant the control of religion, medical practice, trade, wages and prices, and all things else. All things were to be under the jurisdiction of Caesar or the state. Rome could choose to regulate or deregulate at will. This was and is an assertion of the omnicompetence of the state, the belief that human wisdom and more is incarnate in the state, so that what men cannot do for themselves, the state can do. The early church refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord and instead proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. Conflict was thus inescapable. Second, Rome was ready to recognize Christianity as a licit or legal religion, provided also that it would be subject to licensure and taxation. Again, the early church refused. The right of licensure and taxation meant a confession of Caesar's overlordship with respect to Christ. Caesar was a subject of Christ the King, 
not Christ of Caesar. The right to license meant to acknowledge that Christ's kingdom was the property of Caesar. The word license comes from the Latin lacere, to be permitted, to be for sale. The licensee would thus be the property of the licensor. The clash was so real and intense that before the clash began in the form of persecution, the early church wondered whether any obedience to Caesar was possible. St. Paul's answer to this was that the Christian way is not warfare and revolution, but regeneration. Hence, Christians must, up to a point, obey Caesar, not in agreement, but in obedience to God. Thus, obedience is, quote, for conscience sake, unquote, Romans 13.5. The state, Paul told the Romans, is first, quote, ordained of God, unquote, Romans 13.1. It is therefore God's creature. It is God who is the true Lord, not Caesar. The claims of Caesar are thus invalid. However, the state does have a legitimate function under God, and this must not be overlooked in the disagreement and struggle. Second, this legitimate function of the state is to be, quote, the minister of God, to be a terror to the evil, unquote. Romans 13, 3, and 4. The state is thus emphatically a ministry of justice whose function it is to punish crime and to ensure social order by protecting people from external and internal enemies. Third, the state is thus clearly limited to one realm, justice. It has no overlordship, no right to govern religion, health, education, welfare, and other areas of life. These and other areas are outside the competence and the jurisdiction of the state. Fourth, the taxing power of the state, very limited in biblical law, is thus with reference to its legitimate functions. No more that the church has a right to control the state, medicine, agriculture, or anything else does the state have legitimate authority from God to go outside its realm. From the biblical perspective, it is as wrong for the state to do these things as it would be for organized medicine to attempt to control law enforcement, education, marriages, and family life, baseball, and art. Each sphere of life is a law sphere under God, interdependent with other spheres, but never lord over them. Fifth, basic to biblical faith and law is the declaration often stated and summarized in Psalms 24.1, which declares, quote, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein, unquote. The earth and all its fullness and all the inhabitants thereof are the property of God, not the state. God's laws must thus govern the earth, its use, conservation, and development. If man is not subject to God, he will become the subject of Moloch. If we do not follow the Lord, we cannot complain if Moloch claims us. We have created him with our apostasy. Sixth, the biblical doctrine of vocation or calling makes clear that all of life as well as every kind of work or calling is in essence religious. It is either done to the glory of God or to the glory of man, usually ourselves. In either case it will be subject to law. Man cannot live without law. His life must be circumscribed by law. 
He lives in a universe ruled by law. His physical being moves to laws not of his making, and he is inescapably a creature for whom life and law are almost identical and clearly inseparable. Man can only be oblivious to law in death. Medical practice cannot exist outside a world of law. The question thus is, which world of law? The answer to this is a religious answer. If we are humanist, we cannot escape the present dilemma of medicine. It is the creature of the state, and doctors are state property. Their work is licensed by the state and subject to the regulation and examination of the state. In a Christian social order, only criminal medical practice would be within state jurisdiction. Why should the state regulate or license medical practice? Does it have more wisdom to do so than do doctors? State control is irrational but religious. It is grounded on the faith that the state has an omnicompetence as well as total jurisdiction. Medicine for centuries was unlicensed by the state. The state entered into the picture in the United States in part by the ostensible revelation that some medical schools were incompetent. A restudy of the data would probably show that these few schools contributed little to the actual practice of medicine as against the better schools. Certainly, we cannot say that the present and growing regulation of medical schools in terms of equalitarian principles is contributing to the welfare of medicine. The problem was created by humanism, and the humanistic remedy is compounding the problem. It should be noted that state licensure, regulation, and control can protect medicine and doctors, but in the same way that slavery protects slaves. There are benefits, but the loss is a vital one. Hospitals were once all Christian institutions, and medical practice has a biblical framework of faith. It had a freedom under God, because freedom is from and under God, not the state. Modern men and modern doctors are state property. They may grumble at being sheared periodically or sacrificed to suit the state, but in essence most are getting what they have asked for by their daily lives. They are statist in faith. The slave may grumble about his working conditions, but he is simply property and he will be used as such. If he wants a real change, he must work for his freedom. Medical practice is a vocation, either a vocation under God or under the state. I have received reports from readers of what happens to doctors and nurses without a godly sense of vocation. I will not go into an account of these. They are a familiar story, and they will be a more common one unless a Christian sense of vocation is restored to medicine. Meanwhile, they are a source of major concern to conscientious doctors and nurses. They are also a concern to politicians, who use a certain type of medical, quote, horror story, unquote, to attack all American medical standards. For an example, let us look briefly at a prominent politician's work of a few years ago, Senator Edward M. Kennedy's In Critical Condition, The Crisis in America's Health Care, 1972. Superficially, the book is both very convincing and very vulnerable. First, Kennedy's title is hardly a fair one. The words, quote, critical, unquote, and, quote, crisis, unquote, 
set the stage for a highly selective and prejudicial argument. Senator Kennedy himself has received excellent medical attention for his own critical conditions, and he shows little appreciation for his own excellent care in his highly selective stories. In dealing with dental services, he quotes the testimony of Dr. Pal E. Bellin, first deputy commissioner of the New York City Health Department, concerning the quality of dental care given to Medicaid patients in New York City. According to Dr. Bellin, quote, Our working statistic based upon four and a half years' experience in this town is that about five to ten percent of the practitioners represent abusers, unquote page 162. Let us assume that something resembling this is true of doctors. Would we be right in assuming that such men, given private practice or socialized practice, would still be of the same character? As Christians, we must hold that it is not environment that determines character, but character which determines environment. Moreover, a certain type of character is drawn to a congenial environment. Kennedy is right that some doctors are mercenary, thoughtless, and uncharitable. But does working for the federal government remedy these sins? If so, the men of the Internal Revenue Service should be notable for their unselfishness, thoughtfulness, and charity. Senator Kennedy assumes that the federal government can, by legislation, provide a substitute for moral character. This is the grand illusion of modern politics. Second, Kennedy wrote of the wealth of doctors and the, quote, enormous salaries, unquote, in the health insurance industry, pages 13 and 180. In view of Kennedy's private wealth, such an argument is an amazing example of Phariseeism. Kennedy's senatorial salary alone, with all its fringe benefits considered, makes him far wealthier than almost any doctor. Third, Kennedy's economic sense was sadly in error when he wrote, quote, When you go to a doctor in Great Britain, you pay nothing, unquote. Page 222. There is no more costly means of payment than by taxation. No man ever pays more for anything than when he gets services from the state. It would be easy to go on in this vein and to hold Senator Kennedy's arguments up to ridicule. This is not my intention. At the critical point, Kennedy is on firm ground, basic ground, and neither is he nor his associates can be answered except on the same grounds. Kennedy concluded his study by declaring, quote, We have a choice of conscience to make in America, unquote, page 252. Precisely. This is the key, the choice of conscience. What are the choices? The question is one of lordship. Who is the Lord? Who governs man's life, conscience, and calling? The first answer is the state, the ancient god Moloch. This is clearly Senator Kennedy's choice. Whatever his nominal profession, his religious faith is statism. There is no hint in him of the medieval reliance on Christian healing foundations, hospitals, and the like. For him, state action is the moral answer. Most men today agree with him. They only protest when their own ox is gored. An associate of President John F. Kennedy rightly criticized the president's critics as hypocrites because the typical critic went to public schools, going there on a school bus, 
on a public highway, he attended college on the GI Bill, bought a house with an FHA loan, started a business with a loan from the Small Business Administration, retired on Social Security, and then sat back to criticize the welfare recipients as freeloaders. Such critics deal with issues, not principles. They stand not on principles, but on pragmatic purposes. The second answer is by anarchists, or autarchists, who hold that not the state, but man, is the Lord. Man is the absolute and is responsible to none. Again, this view has many followers, who as a matter of conscience, resist statist encroachment and work for what they regard as a truly free society. From a biblical perspective, this position too is wrong. Man is a creature under God, whose true freedom is in God and God's law. But too often the only answer to statism which doctors have made is anarchism. The third answer of conscience is the biblical one. Kennedy is right. Quote, we have a choice of conscience to make, unquote. but his choice is altogether a false one. Medical practice must again become a priestly calling under God. The source of true moral character is in God alone, not in man, and a sound conscience which is basic to every calling and certainly to medical practice is a product of Christian faith and growth. Doctors are today state property, as we all are. Some men see the answer in anarchism in self-ownership. The biblical answer is that we are the Lord's and no man, nor any institution has the right to usurp God's property, nor can we alienate what is rightfully the Lord's. St. Paul's warning is especially timely. Quote, you are bought with a price, be not ye the servants of men. Unquote. 1 Corinthians seven twenty three. The roots of our problem lie not only deep in the past, but also deep in our own hearts. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.